listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. The scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 2. If you'd like to follow along, you can find that on page 885 in your Bible. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native tongue of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others steered and said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the 11, raised his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last day it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mists. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we're doing something a little bit different today. Uh, we're not going to actually have a Pentecost sermon. So sorry, Holy Spirit. But I think the Holy Spirit is still here and uh, will still show up. Oh, wow, this mic is hot. I'm actually going to point this that way because you guys can hear me all right, right? All right, awesome. Um, <clears throat> so, but we've had, we've been in this uh, series talking about new creation, resurrection, hope, things like that for really the last, man, month and a half. And um, a number of you have submitted questions. And so we did one of these, oh my gosh, probably six months or so ago, a Q&A style sermon. But this is um, a whole kind of dialogue based around questions that you all have um, sent in. And Jim, who is up for the new moderator, so depending on how this goes, you can let that influence your vote. <clears throat> Jim is basically going to be your mouthpiece kind of reading off some of these questions and we'll dialogue about it a bit. We'll also have the questions up there. 
um, as they come up. Um, and hopefully we'll make it through all these. And if we run out of time, well, well there'll be some that don't get answered. Sorry. <laughs> but does that, sound, does that sound like a plan for the next half hour? Okay. All right, the first one, it's a two-parter. What happens after we die, before we are resurrected, and do we still have the hope of going to heaven? Okay, cool. So that's a good question. Um, this actually came up, so every couple of weeks we do a sermon talk back after the church, after the church service, um, usually in the parlor, and this was a question that come up, came up a few times. Um, we've been talking about resurrection and new creation all the, and all this stuff, and so there's this question of like, well, what about heaven? Do we still get to go to heaven? Like, Dan, are you taking heaven away from us? I think someone said something like that. Um, and uh, it should be said that like, so no is the answer to that question. I'm not taking heaven away from you. So you, you still get to have heaven. Um, but I think it should be acknowledged that the Bible doesn't spell out exactly, like here's exactly what happens when you die. Here's exactly how it works. Part of the reason there's confusion is because there's passages in the Bible that seem to imply that when you die, you go immediately to the presence of God. You know, Paul talks about, um, you know, wanting to live to preach the gospel, but if he dies, he gets to be with Christ. Jesus tells the thief on the cross, tonight you'll be with me in paradise. Seems pretty immediate. But then you kind of have that juxtaposed with these passages about resurrection, where it seems like all the dead stay dead and then are raised on the last day and judgment day and all that fun stuff from like the book of Revelation. So like how do we hold these together? Um, and generally the, the two kind of schools of thought that have been present in the church for centuries, um, the one that's really the most popular today is the idea that when you die, your consciousness or your soul leaves your body and goes either to heaven or hell, and you await the resurrection. Um, and then the other school of thought, which is going back many more centuries, was actually a more prominent, is that is what we call soul sleep. It's basically that when you die, you rest and you sleep, and it's at the resurrection that everyone is raised. Either way, you don't miss out on heaven, because you either go to heaven in between as you wait for the resurrection, or the resurrection itself is heaven coming to earth. And I think the key shift, kind of what we've been talking about throughout this whole sermon series, a lot of us have been taught that heaven is the goal, that the earth is just a, play, a waiting room, a place where we wait until we can get to heaven. But I think a way of thinking about it that is more in line with the world of Jesus and what we see in the Bible, resurrection is the goal and heaven is the waiting room. If we go to heaven in some form before the resurrection, we're not staying there because the goal is a new earth, a renewed creation where heaven and earth actually come back together. That's the shift. If the world is the waiting room and heaven's the goal, then it doesn't matter what happens here. But if heaven is actually where we wait for a resurrection to come back here, then well, now suddenly the earth matters. And where you see that kind of thinking, it's, it's kind of all over the Bible, but um, a good example would be um, when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, are very upset. And I can't remember if it's Mary or Martha, but Jesus says to one of them, you know, don't worry, your, your brother will live again. And she says, I know he will be raised on the last day. That was the thinking back then, is when you died, if you went to heaven or something, it was, it was temporary, and then you were raised later in the resurrection. So I'm not taking heaven away from you. You can keep heaven. <laughs> Hopefully that's good news. <clears throat> Do Christians have to believe in a literal resurrection of Jesus? And what if I have doubts? And then could Jesus' resurrection have been spiritual rather than physical? So this is really, these are 
both really good questions. We group them together because they're kind of similar, although they have very different nuances. And I just want to acknowledge up front, like, these are brave questions to ask. There's a lot of churches where questions like these wouldn't even be allowed, where, like, questions like this would be taboo. I love that I get to serve and lead in a church where, like, we wrestle with tough questions about our faith. So that's, that's number one. And I want to say, too, I won't do, like, a show of hands who has doubts. I won't do that. But the resurrection is quite a claim. You know, people don't often die, stay dead for three days, and then come back from the dead. So if you're someone who wrestles with that and wrestles with doubts and questions, I don't think that's a sign of lack of faith. I think that's a sign that you're thinking critically about your faith. So I really want to speak to especially anyone who's here, anyone who does struggle with doubts and questions like that. This is a safe place to, to have, to hash that out and wrestle with that. Um, with that said, I should say, if there's one thing that Christians have had in common across centuries and across cultures, if there's like one belief, one event that kind of holds us together, it's the resurrection of Jesus. So if you get to the point where you outright reject the resurrection, like I just don't believe in the resurrection, it's a myth, it didn't happen, that does put you outside of what historically has been considered Christianity. Um, it's hard to have much of a Christian faith without some form of resurrection. And, um, you know, you read Paul, there's definitely parts where Paul says, you know, if, if Christ is not raised, our, our whole faith is, is invalid, essentially. But here's where I think that's really important. And this, this relates to the question about could the resurrection have been spiritual rather than physical? For me, personally, this is not about making sure you have all your doctrines in a line and, and checking the right boxes and, oh, you know, am I, am I in? For me, the, the resurrection is about the hope of resurrection ourselves, the hope that there is some hope for our bodies and there is some hope for creation. Throughout history, Christians have always talked about the resurrection of Christ as sort of the first step in the resurrection of all things. So if we lose a physical resurrection, if Jesus isn't raised, my concern isn't so much that that puts you outside of some, someone's definition of orthodoxy. My concern is, if Jesus isn't raised physically, what hope do we have for our bodies? If Jesus just came back as a spirit, then why hope for the resurrection of our bodies? Why not just hope to go into heaven and live as disembodied spirits? Why worry about what's happening on earth if our eventual destiny does not bring us back here. That's where I wrestle with it. It's about hope. Um, that's where I think a bodily resurrection has an edge over like a spiritual or a visionary sort of thing. Does that make sense? You can push back on that if you want. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> but that's kind of, that's where I come down. Okay, from the, the sermon on bodies and souls, what are we supposed to make of Paul's distinction between spirit and flesh in Romans 8 and spiritual bodies versus physical bodies in 1 Corinthians 15? Those both sound pretty dualistic to me. This is a good question, and I like how this question is kind of pushing. I, re I really like this. Um, so, I, and I know not everyone was here for all the sermons in the series, so some of, these, some of these questions might not make much sense, but this is back to the Bodies and Souls sermon, where we talked about the need to have a more holistic view of the body, that when we talk about the soul, we're not talking about a ghost that lives inside us. Um, we're talking about being a living being, a living, breathing, moving thing. That's how the Bible uses the word soul. Um, 
But this question points to two really good examples where Paul seems to be more dualistic. Dualism is the idea that anything spiritual is good, anything physical is bad. So your soul is good, the body is bad, and just needs to be discarded. Um, I actually put, so the part of Romans 8 that they're talking about is actually going to be on the screen. It's Romans 8, verses 5 to 14. I'll read this, because this is, this is, this is good. And if, if you approach this with a dualistic mindset, I think you're going to mishandle this passage. So hopefully I have the same translation of what's up there, but bear with me. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But if you are not in the flesh, you are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And we'll stop there for a second. We'll get the rest uh, in a minute. So right off the bat, that sounds very dualistic. You have spirit that's good. You have flesh that's bad. Um, But this does go on. And that's the important part for me is what comes next. So next slide should have the rest of this. Starting in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. I bolded that um, line because that kind of pushes back on a dualistic reading of this passage. I just want to read that verse again. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. The idea that our bodies are just to be discarded, that's, that's not what this is saying. Um, and it continues, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The key to me for understanding this passage, Paul's talking about two different ways of living. Paul's not saying all spirit is good, all flesh is bad. Paul's saying we can choose to live according to the Spirit of God, or we can live according to the flesh. And in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, the word that they used for flesh was the word sarx. We talked about sarx, man, a month ago. It's where we get the word sarcophagus. So it's flesh, as in like dead meat. Um, And there was basically this view in that culture that that the body, that the flesh was inherently bad. The Greeks had another word for the body, soma, which was kind of a a heightened understanding of the body. When you think of like a Greek statue that's like carved perfectly and it's like this ideal picture of what a human form should look like, that's soma. Soma is a positive view of the body. Sarx is a negative view of the body. But way at the start of this series, we talked about John 1 and the word becoming flesh. God entering into human form in Jesus in order to redeem it. You would think the word there might be soma, that if God's going to take on flesh, God would take on, you know, the good view of flesh, but it's sarks. In John 1, when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, God takes on this physical form that the Greeks viewed as so dirty and impure and disgusting and fallen in order to redeem it. So what Paul is saying here, I think, fits really well with that. He's picking up on this theme of flesh being bad in that culture, 
And he's saying, don't live according to things that are passing away and dying. Live according to God's spirit, which is appropriate for Pentecost Sunday, uh, which is eternal. Does that make sense? Did I just confuse everybody? Are we seeing nods or shaking the head? Is that my water? Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir. Um, I do want to address, I'm not going to read this one, but 1 Corinthians 15 is a fantastic passage. I actually mentioned it, I think, in my sermon last week. 1 Corinthians 15 is this really long chapter about, it's actually not that long, but Paul's going on and on about the resurrection. If you have questions about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 is a good place to go. But you find this dichotomy where Paul talks about how now we have physical bodies, but in the resurrection we'll have spiritual bodies. And he uses the idea of a seed that our, our physical bodies are planted in the ground, but they will rise to life as spiritual bodies, which, again, sounds very dualistic. It feels like now we have bodies that are physical in form, but someday we'll have bodies that are spiritual in form. Here's the thing with this. <clears throat> the word Paul's using for spiritual, uh, it's pneumatikon. Do you guys want to try to say pneumatikon? Pneumatikon. It's where we get the word pneumatic which pneumatic is like, if you think of a drill that's pneumatic or a tool that's pneumatic, it's a tool that's powered by air or wind. Pneuma literally means spirit. So pneumaticon or pneumaticon, if you want to be really rigid in how you translate this and literal, it wouldn't be spiritual bodies, it's spirit-powered bodies. Think about how a pneumatic tool is powered by air. Paul's not talking about what our bodies are made out of. He's talking about what the body is powered by. It's sort of like, it's not, he's not saying the difference between a wooden ship and a steel ship. He's saying the difference between a gas-powered ship and a coal-burning ship. What does your body run on? Right now, we have bodies that run on physical things, air, food, water, things that run out and eventually die. But in the resurrection, we will have bodies that are spirit-powered, that run on the spirit of God that never die. So again, these passages seem really dualistic, but if you actually kind of read between the lines of what Paul's talking about, it fits really nicely with the idea that our bodies actually matter and are not just going to be disposed someday. Does that make sense, Pneumatikon? Awesome. You guys do so good with these Greek and Hebrew words. Can I, can I throw a little <clears throat> Yeah, please. One yeah, push. What, push what does that tell us about uh, cremation? Oh, that's good. That's a cool question. I'm surprised no one asked about that. So, in, I mean, in some church circles, especially if you go back like 100 years ago or so, which just shows how much we've changed, there were a lot of Christians who were very opposed to cremation because the hope is the resurrection of the body. So the thought was, if you burn up the body, how can it be resurrected? You know, it's gone. We don't worry about that so much anymore, because, and not because we've, we've fixed our view of, of cremation, but because a lot of churches and Christians today don't care about the body, you know. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, personally, in terms of crema cremation, I don't have any problem with cremation. Um, if God can stitch together a universe out of nothingness, I think God can reconstitute our bodies, uh, even if we're cremated. And I mean, think about disciples and stuff who died 2,000 years ago. I don't know how much is really left of their actual physical body but we still, they still had the hope of resurrection that God would bring it back. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm all for cremation. I personally hope that by the time I die, they're shooting bodies into the sun, because I think that would be awesome. Um, <clears throat> but I was also very shaped by, what was it, Star Trek Four when they shoot Spock into the outer space. That's kind of what I want, but we're not there yet. Hopefully the technology, they've got about another 60, 70 years to iron that out, if I'm lucky. So... <laughs> So, yeah. <clears throat> um, 
The next one, uh, what's with the seven bowls in Revelation 21? Oh, this is a good one, and I forgot to put this one on the screen, but that's okay. Um, this is from the heaven and earth um, sermon, where we, the passage was Revelation 21, I encourage you to go read it, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Um, and that's the picture of, of heaven and earth coming back together. Um, heaven is prepared as like a, like a bride um, coming back down to earth, and, and the, the gap between heaven and earth is erased. That's basically how the Bible ends, which is awesome. I'm a big fan. Um, and someone asked about the seven bowls. So, like, Revelation has a lot of really weird stuff in it. Has anyone here ever read the book of Revelation? It's, it's kind of hard to follow. If you want, if, if you want uh, uh, an interesting evening, read through, maybe have like a have a glass of water and read through the book of Revelation. That'll give you some, some good dreams. There's some scary stuff in it. But, but um, Revelation's a very poetic book. There's a lot of imagery, a lot of metaphor. And what pops up in Revelation 21 when it mentions the seven bowls, one of the themes that is returned to over and over again in the book of Revelation is as things happen, um, John is seeing angels come and they pour a bowl over the earth. So that's the metaphor that's being used. You imagine a, a giant angel or something coming and it pours a bowl over the earth and the earth is kind of like rinsed with whatever's in the bowl. And so like one bowl is poured and there's earthquakes all over the earth. One bowl, bowl is poured and heaven and earth come back together. The different, the seven bowls all do different things in the earth and it culminates with heaven and earth coming back together. So it is, it's metaphorical. Um, and seven, seven's an important number in Judaism it has to do with creation and the, and the creation of, it kind of harkens back to the seven days in Genesis 1. So these seven bowls sort of wash the earth in a sense and prepare it to be recreated. That's how I would read what's going on in Revelation tw uh, 21. But um, I can't claim to um, understand everything that's in Revelation because it, it, is, it is really, of the books in the Bible, it's a pretty foreign one to how we think today. It's, it's pretty hard to know what all is going on. But that's, that's, that's what's going on with those bowls. Can you say more about Gnosticism? Okay. So Gnosticism was mentioned early on. Does anyone remember when I mentioned Gnosticism like a month or so ago? So um, Gnosticism is a religious movement that kind of grew up alongside Christianity. Um, they were almost kind of like sibling movements. Um, there was a point in church history, if you go to like the fourth century, where some church historians estimate that almost half of the church also considered itself Gnostic. Um, so it was a very influential movement in the ancient world, and especially on the early church. Um, but then in later centuries, there was a very hard break between Christianity and Gnosticism. And before I talk about Gnosticism, we should say up front, there are still Gnostics today. I don't believe any contemporary Gnostics I don't think it's like a fluid connection to the old Gnostics, but there's people today who still practice Gnosticism, and, and it's really important that, like, I don't think it's good or edifying to be kind of like trashing on another religion in church. I don't think that's a, a good way to spend our time together, but I do think it's important to understand the difference between Christianity and Gnosticism because of the influence that Gnosticism had in the early church and that hard break. It's important to know what's different about them compared to us. So Gnosticism was a syncretistic movement. If anyone knows that word, that's basically bringing together elements from other religions. The Gnostics believed in many gods, and a lot of the, most of those gods had been picked up from other religious traditions. So the Gnostics believed in the God of the Old Testament, 
they considered uh, Yahweh, the Jewish God, a lesser God because they viewed him as very violent, which when you hear Christians today talk about, oh, the Old Testament's so violent, the New Testament's so good, that's actually, that thinking has its root in Gnosticism. Um, and they viewed the New Testament God, the God of Jesus, as one of, if not the highest God. Um, so they had elements they'd picked up from other religions. The wisdom, what, what Gnosticism maybe gets right, is they were, they were one of the early religious movements to realize that there were common themes, common values, common beliefs among the religions. And so what Gnostics were trying to do was pull out those common things together and stitch it into something. Where Christianity, where the church really pushed back against Gnosticism and eventually had its break, is Gnosticism is strictly dualistic. Um, especially in ancient Gnosticism, the belief was physical is inherently bad, spiritual is inherently good. Heaven is good, earth is bad. Uh, soul is good, body is bad. That kind of dualistic thinking, which still really permeates the church, we pick that up largely from Gnosticism. If you have like Jewish friends or family, they don't, most, most Jewish folks I've known and interacted with do not think like that. We did not pick that up from Judaism. We picked that kind of thinking up from Gnosticism. Um, another piece from Gnosticism that's still around in the church that I think is important um, to talk about, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the way Gnosticism worked, they believed that in the afterlife, you essentially had almost like a series of tests you had to pass through to kind of get to the highest form of being or heaven or enlightenment or however you would think of it. So they believed that there were kind of secret knowledge. There, was, there were riddles and, and secrets that not many people knew. And the spiritual walk was about learning those things so that you would be prepared to navigate the afterlife and kind of make it to the highest level of heaven. Where that thinking is still kind of prevalent in the church, I think, is how a lot of churches talk about doctrine, that you've got to have all your doctrinal ducks in a row. You've got to know. You've got to know the exact nature of Christ. You've got to know the exact, you got to be able to talk about the Trinity, and boy, if you don't have the creed all ironed out, you're in trouble. That, that comes from Gnosticism. Um, Christianity we are saved through grace. I don't think there's going to be a doctrine test when we get to eternity. I think it's going to be you're covered by the grace of Christ. That's, that's, that's where we put our hope. Um, so that would be another, another kind of residual element of Gnosticism that I think is around, that we save ourselves by knowing the right answers to theological questions, which that, you don't see that in the church at all anymore. You do. <laughs> you see that a lot. I, yeah, anyway, that was a bad joke. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> That's a little bit about Gnosticism, though. And, it, and it's also important to note, if you talk to a Gnostic about it, they would probably have a very different account. So don't just take my word for it. I'm biased. Go talk to a Gnostic or read a book on Gnosticism if you're, if you're curious about kind of what that movement looked like. <clears throat> You've said that it's God, not us, who brings about new creation. But then you also said that we need to build for new creation. Aren't those the same? That's a good question. And this is actually the last question that we have. Um, and I'm surprised we actually have plenty of time. I thought I was going to have to rush this one. I can take my time with it. So yeah, so this might have been confusing across the different sermons. Um, you know, in one sermon I'm talking about how it's God, not us, who brings about new creation. There's nothing that we can do to kind of bring, like it, we can't make heaven come to earth. It's not, it's not like if we work hard enough at it, we can, we can bring it about. God brings it about. But then I also talked about the need to build for new creation and to participate in what God is doing. 
And the distinction there, I think, is one about, uh, yes, understand that God is the one who is charting the course of history and bringing these things together, and our job is to be part of what God is doing. So it's kind of like watching a movie when you've already seen the end. Like when you already know the end of the movie, that changes the way you watch a movie. You're aware of things you wouldn't be aware of otherwise. You know where the plot is going. The twists don't get you as much. You're not, you're not as, um, as um, distracted by the subplot over here because you already know how that resolves. You know the end of the story. I would say the same thing when it comes to Jesus and the resurrection. The resurrection is like a little window into the end of history. You want to know where the earth is going ultimately? It's, it's resurrection. Um, and so when we go through life, there are plenty of distractions. There are plenty of alternative messages about where the world is going and how we're going to save the world and who we have to follow for the world to go where we want it to go. We've already seen the end. We've seen it in Christ. We know God's, God's destiny for the world is to redeem it, recreate it, renew it, bring it together with heaven. And so the question for me is, do we live into that trajectory for the world, or do we live into some other trajectory? In a lot of churches, the mindset is the world is just going to burn and pass away and die, so keep your head down, stay in your little sanctuary, you know, don't, uh, don't engage with anything going on out there, just focus on in here, because this is our lifeboat, we're just trying to survive until the rest of this all comes to an end. But if, if you believe that the end that the world is heading towards is actually God renewing and recreating it, well, it doesn't really work to stay in here. We want to be out there to be part of what God is doing. Um, that's, that's the difference. It's not that if we work hard enough, we can, we can make heaven show up on earth. God's the one who does that. We can go out and be part of what God is doing. Why don't I pray to close us, and then we'll, and then we'll, uh, we'll keep going. <clears throat> God, I thank you for this church, Lord. Uh, I thank you that I get to be part of a congregation that is sharp and curious. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and uh, grapple with these questions, to ask these questions. Um, we thank you for curious minds, for hungry minds, and um, Lord, we just pray that you would continue to shape this church. Uh, we pray that your spirit would fill this place. We pray that um, the work that we do um, both in the walls of this church and outside in the community, would be practicing for eternity, that we would be uh, participating now in what you are already doing to bring about your kingdom, Lord. We pray that you would bless that work, that you would guide that work, that you would give us wisdom and courage, um, and that you would go with us, um, that you would go with us out of here, Lord. It's in your son's name and in the name of your spirit as well that we pray on this Pentecost Sunday. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.